This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with fingers crossed everybody knows the war is over everybody knows the good guys lost everybody knows the fight was fixed the poor stay poor the rich get rich that's how it goes everybody knows Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And Dan, what do you say we go right through till 3 o'clock this morning? Do you think people will be upset if we preempt uh, the all-night jukebox? Perhaps they will. But I, I, uh, I have so much information uh, to impart that I, I don't know if I can squeeze it into two hours. Uh, George Ginescu, my good friend, who... Um, sits in the uh, the chair Dan now occupies for a big band Sunday night and uh, was kind enough to mention my trip to Washington. I just I got back Monday, late Monday night after uh, four days uh, shooting a documentary d- uh, down there uh, covering the X conference, which is held every year at the um, well this year it was held at the uh, the press club, the National Press Club and we were staying right beside the press club. I say we it was a, a small uh, crew. Uh, a shout out to uh, Peter Horton, the uh, the segment producer, and uh, Joseph Ham, our very capable uh, young uh, cameraman. And uh, the X Conference, for those of you who don't know, organized every year by Stephen Bassett. Uh, it's a part of the disclosure movement, trying to pressure uh, the movers and shakers in Washington and elsewhere uh, to uh, to release. Uh, or to end, I guess, the the uh, the the, uh, the truth embargo on UFOs and ETs, uh, we and we taped about nine interviews, including one with uh, George Norrie, George Knapp, Linda Moulton Howe, uh, uh, Richard Dolan. Went over to Dr. Stephen Greer's house, his apartment, uh, in uh, in uh, beautiful Washington, downtown Washington, and uh, shot a very intense interview. Uh, we're hoping that um, you'll get to see all of this uh, in our. Uh, feature-length documentary. These things, I'm told, I'm new to this uh, filmmaking biz, uh, but I'm, I'm told it'll be uh, probably uh, about a year, these things usually, uh, you know, take uh, 
by the time you edit it and so forth. But we have some more uh, more uh, shooting to do, more editing. I have to be careful, you know, <laughs> you're crossing the, uh, going through customs. Uh, wh- why are you uh, going to Washington? Well, we're going to go shoot some interview. <laughs> you know, you don't use that word, shoot. We're going to videotape. But very quickly, we were on the mall. And uh, the, uh, the Marines had a, uh, they were just taking down uh, uh, their exhibit. They had a lot of their um, weaponry out there on the mall. They had the, the, these uh, marvelous uh, tanks and uh, armor personnel carriers. And, uh, and they had uh, one of these attack uh, helicopters, Cobra attack helicopters. So we thought, well, we can use that. So we were shooting what we call B-roll. Uh, and... Uh, we asked the Marine, is it all right if we shoot this? Now, I should point out that uh, our young cameraman, Joseph, is Korean. And uh, and I don't know if it, you know, North Korea, that whole thing going on, of course. Uh, he said, as long as you don't shoot in the cockpit, as long as you don't point the camera in the direction of the cockpit, I'm fine with it. So we were, uh, we were videotaping, and then about uh, 10 minutes in, I don't know if Joseph was getting a little too close to the cockpit, but this big, burly fella, all in black, with his uh, sidearms, a rather uh, sizable service revolver, or it was an automatic pistol is what it was, in, on his uh, hip, uh, comes uh, uh, sauntering up to us and said, I've been watching you. <laughs> you know, as soon as someone with a gun says, I've been watching you. Uh, anyway, he said, uh, we, we, we tried to explain we're shooting a documentary. And then, of course, it gets weird. Well, we're shooting a documentary on UFOs. Well, why are you shooting uh, a, a, a Cobra attack helicopter? And uh, it just, it was very complicated to try and explain. And uh, he just said, I think you're just going a little too far. And we said, yes, sir. All right. We'll, we'll cease and desist immediately. And we packed up and we moved on. But, you know... I'm, I'm sure things obviously are a, a little more tense in Washington since 2001, 9-11. But uh, overall, you know, it, it wasn't uh, terribly intense. You know, the, the, the Washington police uh, around uh, the White House and so forth, they're very helpful and courteous. They're not gruff. And, and uh, if you get a little too close to the fence or whatever, they just say, could you, you know, please get off the sidewalk or move over there. Anyway, it was, uh, it was an, it's an amazing city. Never been there before. The grandeur, the, it, it is somewhat ostentatious. I mean, you, the Lincoln Memorial is like the Parthenon in Athens. It's huge, uh, but deservedly so because of the history. And, you know, I, I love this country, Canada, and I love Ottawa, but it's, that is what it's lacking, that grandeur. Where, are the, where is the huge, you know, monolithic uh, tribute to the, the, the founders of our country, the Johnny McDonald's and the, uh, the Lauriers and so forth? Why can't we be a little or think on a little more of a grand scale? Anyway. More on that later, the, uh, the UFO uh, uh, documentary. In the, uh, the second hour of the program tonight, The Elvis Conspiracy Part 2. Eliza Presley uh, will be back on the show. She was th- my very first show here at AM 740. I had Eliza Presley on because it was August the 16th. And she is a uh, uh, fighting in court to uh, be recognized as a legitimate heir to the Presley estate uh, she has DNA evidence, she contends, that she is Vernon Presley's daughter, love child. Uh, she grew up across the street from Graceland. And, uh, and then, you know, connect the dots, that would make her Elvis Presley's half-sister. Uh, but, uh, and she'll be joined uh, at midnight with her attorney and the, uh, the head of her forensic team, who's sort of putting this evidence together. It, 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 
I know when you hear the word Elvis uh, is alive or the, the term Elvis is alive, you think, oh boy, here we go again, crazy. Uh, but you got to listen to this stuff because the DNA evidence apparently leads down this trail. Uh, supposedly, there's a guy by the name of Jesse Garen Presley living under that name. And this DNA evidence, you'll hear, proves Jesse Garen Presley is in fact Elvis Presley. I kid you not. That is uh, where we're going tonight after midnight. Right now, however, let's just jump right into it because time is tight. Jesus uh, means a lot of things, obviously, to different people. Uh, And for me, I believe he was who he said he was, the Son of God, and he performed miracles. Uh, But my next guest is saying, well, did he perform miracles or was he just an incredible physician. We're, we're all aware, of course, uh, the, uh, the, the, the miracles that uh, are attributed to Jesus, leprosy, blindness, paralysis. These are just a, a few of the ailments that he uh, miraculously cured. But my guest says, what if some of these cures resulted not from his divinity, not from Jesus' divinity, but from his extraordinary skills as a doctor? And as a doctor, he's obviously very interested in in what healers of the past might have achieved. Jesus may have been the greatest physician of his day, and it's fascinating to consider how he might have accomplished many of these so-called miracles. Dr. George Honig earned his medical degree from the University of Illinois and a doctorate in biochemistry from George Washington University after graduation. He specialized in pediatric hematology. He's worked as the head of the Division of Hematology at Children's Memorial Hospital and the Pediatric Service Chief at Michael Reese Hospital and the University of Illinois Hospital, where he is currently a pediatrician. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Illinois College of Medicine and lives in Chicago with his wife, Olga. They have three grown children, five grandchildren. And uh, if that's not enough, he's also an author of a, um, an interesting piece of fiction. He's, uh, he's actually explored this whole, uh, um, well, it's, it's a religious thriller. It's called The Alexandria Letter, a novel. And we're pleased to have Dr. George R. Honig here on The Conspiracy Show. Hello, doctor. Hello. Let me ask you, first of all, why you chose to explore this fascinating, controversial uh, uh, a story or, or exploration through a, through a novel? Well, to begin with, I've had a long-standing interest in the field of scholarship that's, that's known as historical Jesus study. And it's a field that's been uh, in place for nearly a hundred years. It endeavors to understand Jesus as a historical figure and, and to recreate what he was or might well have been um, as a human being on earth, um, distinct from the Christ of faith, which is the uh, Christian theological um, uh, issue uh, relating to Jesus. So uh, I've had a long-standing interest in that uh, area of history, and being a physician, um, and given that so much of the gospel story uh, focuses on Jesus as a healer, uh, the connection was a natural one for me. Now, why uh, I did it as a as a novel? Um, when you do historical fiction, it gives you the opportunity to um, 
to talk about a, a historical figure uh, to give a sense uh, of their emotions, of their uh, aspirations, uh, of how they uh, interrelated with other people. And so uh, rather than writing this as a straight um, exposition uh, as to what I thought uh, Jesus might have been and might have done, by presenting it in the form of a novel, it kind of brings the character to life and uh, presents uh, more opportunities to give uh, a sense of, uh, of what I think he really might have been like. Now, I, I sort of laid my, my bias uh, on the table. I, I uh, happen to be a practicing Orthodox Christian, so I, I, I believe that Jesus did perform miracles. But so how did you uh, approach this, or what is your, your perspective on, on, uh, on Jesus? Do you well, think well, that I it's mean, possible he performed miracles? Or? Well, um, the, obviously that's a, that's a theological question, and I'm not a theologian, but, but if you look at the healings, uh, that are described in in the gospel stories. Um, if you take the most famous of them, uh, the raising of Lazarus, yes. um, th- there's certainly no way that 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 can be understood other than as a divine supernatural kind of thing. Um, the, the the section in the uh, in the gospels says that. Um, Lazarus uh, had died uh, four days uh, earlier. His body was decomposing and and uh, smelled like it was decomposing. Um, and Jesus brought him back to life and restored him uh, to the state he was uh, was in before. Clearly, uh, working from from that kind of a uh, of a narrative, there's no other explanation that one could reasonably propose that would. Um, uh, would represent other than uh, a, a supernatural kind of thing. But but if you look at some of the other uh, healing episodes that are described in the New Testament, you get the sense that there may be uh, indeed more to these than simply, uh, as the New Testament generally describes these healing episodes, as Jesus saying, out evil spirit, um, and the spirits... Uh, uh, left the uh, afflicted person, and the person uh, was well. So, uh, for example, there, there's one such healing episode, which is um, presented in, in Matthew and in Mark uh, in very similar uh, kinds of ways. Um, the uh, story is that a ruler uh, of a synagogue uh, comes to Jesus and says that his daughter died, and he's uh, greatly distressed over that. Um Jesus um, comes uh, there. Um, the story um, uh, perhaps uh, might be better understood if there were a, a few more details, but Jesus says, well, she's not dead, she's alive. Um, and uh, some while later, uh, she returns to, to, to full normal function. Well, my interpretation of that is that when Jesus said, she's not dead, she's alive, it was obviously based on some observation. Um, he must have done what any physician, um, certainly any good physician, would have done, which is to examine the patient. And undoubtedly, he observed that she was warm, that she was still breathing, uh, even though she was uh, not conscious and, and, and was perhaps uh, in a coma. And many of the other stories give the same kind uh, of an impression that um, 
that some real clinical skill, as we would call it nowadays, was brought to bear uh, on these individuals. And a good explanation for that would be that, that Jesus was perhaps the foremost uh, healer, uh, physician, if you will, uh, of his time. And, and uh, one can read very specific uh, uh, information about ancient healers when one reads about Hippocrates, and a lot of that uh, experience is, is well recorded. And what ancient healers could do uh, in many respects was, was truly remarkable. And so um, I can uh, well envision uh, that Jesus might well have been uh, so capable as a, as a healer that what he did, at least some of the healings that he did, might well have been seen as being uh, totally miraculous, and that the recorders of those episodes who wrote the Gospels and the other uh, 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 texts uh, that describe these things uh, simply had no other recourse but to, to attribute them to, to supernatural kinds of events. And that's basically the, the, the perspective I've taken. All right, Dr. George R. Honig, The Alexandria Letter. Did Jesus perform miracles or medicine? I'm back with more of The Conspiracy Show. I'm Richard Serrett. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. According to the, uh, the Gospel of John, it was impossible to narrate all of the miracles performed uh, by Jesus. So we only get a, uh, a glimpse, and they were carefully selected and for specific reasons, uh, of the, the miracles mentioned in the, uh, in the four Gospels. And, uh, of course, we have um, three instances of uh, Jesus resurrecting, um, supposedly resurrecting uh, people from the dead. And my guest mentioned uh, the daughter of Jairus, where a, uh, a major patron of a synagogue asks Jesus to heal his daughter. Uh, while Jesus is on his way, men tell Jairus his daughter has died. Jesus says she was only sleeping and wakes her up uh, with the, uh, the word. I, just, I, I remember the, the, the wonderful scene in uh, 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 Jesus of Nazareth, uh, which is, uh, I, th- I believe it's Zeffirelli who, made, who directed that film, uh, Talitha Kum. And she arises. Uh, my guest, however, contends that it was quite possible Jesus was not performing a miracles, but was an incredibly advanced uh, physician. Uh, so, if we leave the uh, the uh, the resurrections aside, and we talk about some of the other uh, healings that are attributed, uh, there is the uh, the the, uh, the case of of Jesus healing a man with dropsy, uh, healing a man with a withered hand. Uh, the ones that I, that are quite interesting are the exorcisms. Uh, uh, Dr. Honig. Now, as a as a as a, a modern medical physician, how do you how do you look at those uh, the the exorcisms where these, uh, for example, the one at the uh, the synagogue in Capernaum? Uh, uh, how do you how do you view those? What what might have been playing out there if not a miracle? Well, one possibility is, uh, as I referred to uh, before, um, that the the 
the individuals who, who wrote these stories, uh, perhaps years later, um, uh, felt that was the most likely explanation and simply uh, wrote that in. Now, when you when you think about uh, exorcism, of course, we think about um, such um, methods as hypnosis, um, which is certainly applied uh, widely uh, in dealing with certain types of problems, perhaps uh, less widely now than it has been in the past, um, but other kinds of uh, efforts to uh, achieve an altered mind state of the patient um, to sort of categorize uh, those kinds of things uh, more broadly, um, certainly could give the appearance uh, of an exorcism. Um, it's not literally uh, driving out uh, an evil spirit uh, in, in, in the literal sense, as uh, in the movie The Exorcist uh, showed uh, so dramatically, uh, but rather uh, driving out something um, that's within the mind or within the psyche or within the subconscious uh, of, a, of an individual. And uh, in an earlier era, uh, when one of the most useful things one could do would be to spend time with the patient, uh, to talk with them, uh, to comfort them, to try to understand um, uh, what is tormenting them, um, talking through some of these things uh, and providing some of these other kinds of perhaps altered uh, mind uh, state uh, circumstances could together have given um, uh, a kind of, a, of, of an exorcism uh, of sorts uh, that in the final analysis uh, might have led to a patient um, in, in a better state of, of health and certainly in a better state of mind. So uh, I think all of those kinds of things could, could certainly have entered into to, um, to that uh, group of, of, of people that Jesus healed. Uh, if memory serves, there are about four uh, separate cases of Jesus healing the blind. Um, there's a, um, uh, an example of where Jesus heals two blind men in Galilee. Yes. Um, now, how, I mean, he, you know, he touched their eyes and restored their sight. Uh, how, I mean, what could possibly... Uh, explain that away other than a miracle. I mean, uh, what possible uh, skills as a physician would he have had to, to, to restore the sight to the blind, Dr. Honig? Well, again, uh, if, uh, depending on what the, what the cause of the blindness is, um, um, th- there could be a variety of possibilities, but, but um, in, in, in the studies of, that Freud presented of patients with various sorts of, uh, of problems that uh, he was able to deal with, one of them, uh, which apparently was was far more uh, frequent uh, during Freud's time than it is nowadays, is something called hysterical blindness. And in that kind of a situation, uh, someone who is, um, for whatever reason, uh, faced with, with overwhelming uh, kind of uh, grief or reaction to something that happened or uh, that they were uh, fearful might have happened, um, and they become so overwhelmed that something dramatic happens. Um, and hysterical blindness is one such thing. These individuals simply lose their sight and are, are in, in, in every sense of the word, blind. And only by understanding uh, what the underlying problem was, at least that was what uh, Freud 
um, uh, would have us believe, uh, and by dealing with those uh, uh, problems, um, as the uh, patient uh, recovered, the sight came back. Um, uh, it's interesting how uh, hysteria is a thing that uh, tends to be more frequent in certain periods of history than others. We can postulate that perhaps in in uh, in the first century, uh, that was such a time when people overcome by grief or other kinds of of, of great deep uh, feelings might well have expressed it in that kind of a way. Uh, that's not to to say that in the specific examples given in the New Testament that that any of them seem to to um, uh, to, to, to represent and clearly uh, represent uh, hysterical blindness, but it's just one example of how such a thing could have happened and how such a thing could have been resolved. Uh, and, and in some cases, um, hysterical blindness can, uh, can respond uh, and recover very quickly. So it's just one way that one could possibly think about this. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps it, it could explain uh, a, a couple of them. But then we have the the uh, the healing in the Gospel of John that takes place during the the Festival of Tabernacle, just about six months before Christ's Passion, and mm-hmm. we are told that he heals a man that has been blind from birth, and he Jesus uh, uh, mixes uh, spittle with dirt to make sort of a mud mixture. He right. places it in the man's eyes, and then he asks the man to wash the uh, his eyes in the uh, in the uh, in the pool of um, of um, the Siloam in the temple. And when this is done, the man's sight is returned, blind from birth, Doctor Honig. Yeah, that one would be awfully difficult to to to, to think of of a uh, of a straightforward or even not straightforward kind of um, of, of 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 medical. Um, um, Identity that 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 one could imagine would be curable in in, in some rather short order. So uh, I, I think that one would have to be in the same uh, category as uh, uh, the raising of Lazarus. Um, if indeed what the New Testament tells us uh, is historically accurate, and that of course is always a big if when it comes to a, a religious text, um, then that would would need to be thought of as a supernatural a kind of healing um, as, as best I can, I can see. All right, we'll pick it up on the other side with Dr. George Honig, author of The Alexandria Letter, Jesus, Miracle Worker or Brilliant Physician. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It's uh, c- quite uh, fitting, actually. We're talking about, uh, you know, Jesus, the Bible. Uh, Jesus, of course, a, a Jew. And uh, if I, uh, if you were to tell me that uh, I would be spending my uh, my weekends uh, uh, helping my lovely bride, the mighty Aphrodite, construct a chuppah, I never would have believed you. But that's exactly what I was doing uh, uh, this weekend. Uh, Beautiful of uh, this beautiful uh, hoopa that my wife is building. She's um, the mighty Aphrodite. She's now in the wedding and event decor rental business. And uh, so, just a quick plug here, folks. <laughs> if you have a granddaughter, or a daughter, someone getting uh, married, or a baptism, or a bar mitzvah, or a, some sort of a formal event, um, and she has uh, these uh, elegant but very ex- inexpensive uh, uh, chair covers and uh, and uh, 
event decor. Check out her website. It's www.fantasyweddingrentalsyorkregion.com. Fantasyweddingrentalsyorkregion.com. All right. Uh, back to uh, Dr. George Honig and the Alexandria letter and uh, the idea that uh, Jesus perhaps may have been just a brilliant physician and uh, not so much a miracle worker. Now, uh, Jesus, uh, a Nazarene, uh, some contend, was a, a, a member of this Essene um, sect. Uh, is there anything that you have uncovered in his, his the historical uh, Jesus, uh, Dr. Honig, uh, that would lead you to conclude that he would have received some... some uh, uh, formal uh, uh, um, education in, in, in medicine? Well, um, of course, formal education, uh, as we think of it, uh, is a rather new uh, event in the history of medicine. And um, healers in ancient times, um, from every account uh, I've been able to, to find, um, is by apprenticeship. Um, someone spends time uh, with a skilled healer and, and really learns uh, by doing and, and, and by watching. And so um, there's nothing in, in, in the Gospel stories uh, that, that would um, provide any, any, uh, any answer to how, how Jesus might have uh, been apprenticed or, or otherwise uh, learned uh, the healing uh, that he was able to uh, presumably achieve. Uh, in my story, um, uh, I describe a um, a woman who is both a midwife and a healer uh, in the town of Nazareth, and have used uh, that uh, that character and that conception uh, to try to demonstrate uh, how someone uh, this was uh, Jesus in his earlier life um, might, by uh, observation, by asking questions, uh, by observing. Uh, come to acquire some of the skills uh, that uh, that an ancient uh, healer would would have. Uh, as far as the Essene part of it, um, I, I think that uh, question is uh, uh, goes back and forth, and I don't think there's a, 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 as much attention being focused on that idea nowadays as as there was in, in earlier times. Um, but I read a good deal about uh, uh, the Essenes and, and and what's been written about them, uh, and. Uh, for whatever it's worth, in, in this connection, uh, there's nothing I ever encountered that would suggest that the Essenes had any special uh, interest or achievement uh, in the in the healing arts. All right, we have uh, some people lining up uh, to ask questions, make comments. Are you uh, good to take a few calls? Absolutely. Terrific. Let's uh, start with uh, Linda in Brampton, Ontario. Good evening, Linda. Good evening. Thanks for taking my call. I just have a couple of comments even if he was a brilliant physician or merely a brilliant physician, that does not explain all the miracles that have been attributed to his name today. I was healed of lupus as a child, and I was a young child. I, was, I went to the family doctor. The family doctor wasn't sure what the problem was. He had me sent to a specialist, and the specialist diagnosed me with lupus. They were going to put me on cortisone shots, and my mom said, told him we're Christians. We do believe in the power of healing through the name of Jesus Christ. Can you give us some time for prayer and what else we can do? And the doctor agreed to this. He did allow it. And after a few weeks, about a month, we came back and I was retested, more blood tests. The test came back negative. Now that's just one miracle in my life. I've had others. When I was even younger, I had two sets of tubes put in my ears. I had 40% hearing loss in one ear. Again, through prayer, I was healed. 
if he, like I said, if he was just merely, a, uh, the name of a dead physician has no power, but the name of the Son of God, God the Son, does. That's my first comment. My second comment is the story with the centurion who came to Christ, and he said that his servant was sick near death, and he, uh, Christ was going to come to his house, and he said, no, I'm not worthy. This is in the Gospel of Luke. He said, I'm not worthy for you to come. You just need to say the word, and I know he'll be healed. And Christ said, because of his faith, the servant would be healed. That hour the servant was healed, Christ was nowhere near him, and no physician was called in. So obviously we're dealing with someone who is more than a man not just a great physician. All right, uh, Linda, thank you for the, uh, the the call and the comments. Let, let's talk about the healing of the, the centurion's servant uh, in Matthew. Uh, what is your, uh, your your explanation for that, Dr. Honig? Hey, again, uh, and, and, and that one, I think, is, is very clearly one uh, for which it would be um, difficult, if not impossible, uh, to come up with any kind of an explanation based on healing skill in the conventional sense as we think of it now that, that could possibly have accounted for, for that kind of a, uh, of a healing um, event. And, and so, and again, and, and, uh, just to emphasize something that your caller raised, um, uh, I by no means mean to imply by what I've said that, that nothing uh, that represents supernatural healing uh, in the gospel stories uh, can can be excluded and simply explained away. Uh, obviously, a good many of the healing episodes um, have to be uh, accepted uh, on the face of it. And, and, and my point uh, is that some, at least, suggest uh, that that Jesus was indeed a, a gifted and extraordinarily uh, capable physician above and beyond uh, all of the other uh, things that we've talked about. After your, your research, uh, Dr. Honig, uh, have you, uh, how does, how do you uh, now sort of view the, the practice of medicine supposedly by, uh, you know, the ancients? Uh, you know, we're starting to learn, for example, uh, that, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago uh, uh, in, in, in South America, perhaps even a thousand years ago, they were performing some sort of uh, surgery on the skull, uh, uh, perhaps even uh, there's depictions of what appears to be uh, some sort of brain surgery. I mean, uh, do you think that there's sort of a, a, a chauvinism uh, towards ancient civilizations and their knowledge of medicine? I don't know if it's chauvinism or not, but, but I, I strongly suspect that a lot of ancient medicine had a whole lot more to it than we've ever uh, Really given credit for uh, the, the example you, you referred to was was trephining, and this was I think more than a thousand years old. People actually had circular um, cuts into the skull, and pieces of bone were removed in a very nice neurosurgical kind of way. Uh, people have hypothesized that they were um, perhaps uh, seeking to release evil spirits, or who knows what. But, but the surgery was there, and it was remarkable. And these, these, these uh, uh, bone uh, the surgeries healed up because you could see from the skull uh, that the holes had been cut, but that the, uh, the skull had, had, had healed over. So they must have had pretty good surgical technique because uh, uh, if that area becomes infected and you don't have antibiotics, the uh, patient is not likely to survive. So I think that's, that's one issue. 
but but the point you raise is 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 one I strongly believe in that probably uh, the best of the ancient healers were really very effective physicians and knew a lot of things uh, that they could bring to bear in in dealing with their patients uh, that w- were enormously beneficial. But back to uh, the miracles attributed to uh, to Jesus, the yes. uh, the healing of the paralytics. Okay. Um, uh, can you give us a uh, sort of a more of a scientific explanation uh, for? Uh, well, oh, pick one. Uh, there, there's uh, the healing of the paralytic at Bethesda. There's um, you know at the pool of Bethesda. There's uh, others. But uh, would you like to weigh in on one of those? Well, I, I mean, all of them. Um, can be looked at really in the same light, I think. Um, if, if we think of a paralytic um, uh, as, as, as someone who's had a long-standing paralysis uh, of, a, of a limb, uh, say, uh, due to nerve damage or disease to, to the nerve or uh, other uh, disease process or trauma uh, uh, to the area, and, and it's been long-standing, um, as things stand now, and even as uh, as we could uh, most optimistically uh, envision them, um, that's an irreversible kind of thing. Um, and possibly uh, new ideas with stem cells and and, and, and other kinds of things uh, that that will not uh, happen uh, uh, until the distant future might conceivably be be a way to to, to reverse that. But but by any kind of skill that one could uh, imagine or attribute to an ancient healer, no, it just simply couldn't apply to, to, to that category of patients. Uh, what about the, uh, the, the healing of uh, the cleansing of the lepers? Well, um, what was called a leper um, probably uh, it included almost any kind of skin disease, at least that's what the medical historians have come to conclude uh, in uh, what they've uh, seen uh, about uh, about uh, the, the different things that have been written about about leprosy. Uh, leprosy apparently was synonymous with um, skin disease. Um, now, there are some forms of skin disease um, that do get better, um, and, and some of them are quite dramatically. Um, Nowadays, we put uh, steroids or other forms of cortisol uh, on uh, inflammatory skin lesions of uh, many kinds, uh, and they get better very quickly. Um, but uh, the ancients didn't have uh, corticosteroids uh, uh, for that purpose. But, but certain types of uh, even chronic uh, skin disease, uh, psoriasis, uh, and, and, and other types of, of chronic inflammatory disease, um, do come and go and can get much better uh, and then later can get worse again uh, or not. Uh, they follow an extremely variable course. So one could uh, envision uh, a, a patient during ancient times who had a fairly severe, uh, certainly noticeable uh, inflammatory skin uh, affliction of one sort or another that um, could, with uh, proper care, um, have have gotten better. Um, so these kinds of things uh, they hinge uh, on, on what the definition of leprosy is and, and a lot of other things, but, but, but that certainly is within the realm of the possible. 
Wouldn't though the the gospels have have uh, included, or I, I guess perhaps not, because that would uh, obviously uh, sort of argue against his divinity. But uh, you know, no mention in 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 the gospels of, of of Jesus applying some sort of a salve or an ointment to any of these uh, 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 lepers. It's simply a laying on of hands. Yeah, and 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 that's what the what the gospel writers uh, referred to. Though when we have uh, uh, the earlier example you, you talked about with uh, some spit and some sand or whatever, um, it at least um, raises uh, the possibility and raises the, the uh, idea that, that the uh, ancient writers um, were aware of, of, of such uh, things being done, and so one could extrapolate that fairly uh, easily to imagine that various kinds of... of uh, uh, of ointments, uh, poultices, uh, and other uh, kinds of treatments for for the skin that were used, and some of them uh, might well have have, have had uh, substantial uh, pharmacologic benefit. Uh, what has been the reaction uh, uh, to uh, to uh, the Alexandria letter? Any, you know, obviously there's. Uh, uh, this is a contentious or a very controversial uh, a, a point uh, when you're, you know, questioning the possibility of of uh, his divinity. How, how has the book been uh, received? Well, uh, the book has only been out for a few weeks. I have to tell you, um, and I think most people who who have read it, um, uh, certainly people who are more devout um, um, Bible readers and 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 more uh, devout Christians. Um, come back very quickly with the, the same uh, kind of point that Linda and others uh, have made, uh, namely that many of these things have to be um, uh, divine intervention and, and simply can't be explained. And, and some of my medical colleagues uh, have read the book with particular attention to that question, and, and, and that's the answer they've, they've come back with. And so um, the, 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 the notion that, that some of the healings uh, were indeed uh, divine intervention is something I take no issue with. Um, and, 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 and the point uh, I'm trying to emphasize is that um, some of the healings um, and, and perhaps others that, that are not even chronicled, um, to me at least, speak to Jesus have, as having been uh, an extraordinarily gifted healer. And I think it's emphasizing that aspect rather than de-emphasizing the other uh, that I'm seeking to do in the book. Have you ever witnessed a, a some sort of a, a healing which you could only describe in the end as supernatural? Um, I've, I've seen plenty of patients who I expected would not survive, who did survive, and I had no um, explanation um, of any rational kind to explain it. Now, um, for it to be supernatural, um, at least the way I would think about a supernatural healing in, in this day and age, um, would require some attention. Uh, so uh, when we think about uh, the example you gave of the person who was some distance away but who was healed uh, nevertheless, um, one could uh, imagine that happening. Um, there are... Uh, some studies published, uh, someone published a thing um, a year or two ago um, where they had um, people praying for a sick person, um, not on site. Um, and at first, the data seemed to suggest 
that those prayers, even though the patient didn't even know about it, um, had uh, led to a better outcome uh, for a group of patients. Uh, later, a larger study uh, uh, suggested that that was indeed not the case. All right, we'll uh, pick it up on the other side. Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Curiosity? Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Eliza Presley, the... Well, she contends she is the... A daughter, the love child of Vernon Presley, making her the half-brother of Elvis Presley, and she'll be along with her forensic, uh, the, the leader of her forensic team, because she's taking this to court, uh, and uh, we'll find out where that is uh, in, in the the legal uh, process. Uh, she wants to be declared a legitimate heir to the Presley estate, uh, and but more importantly, I think, um, uh, and, and, and in, uh, of interest. Uh, to you would be the fact that this DNA evidence that she has also would uh, strongly suggest that a man living under the name of Jesse Garen Presley is, in fact, Elvis Presley. She'll explain along with uh, her attorney and, uh, as I say, the uh, the head of her forensic team. Right now, a few moments remain with uh, Dr. George Honig, who has uh, uh, penned a very uh, compelling, well-crafted uh, uh, book called The Alexandria Letter. It's a, it's a religious thriller uh, which examines Jesus from a very different historical perspective, the idea that perhaps uh, Jesus was a brilliant physician, not necessarily just a miracle worker. Many of the, the healings that are ascribed to Jesus um, that, we now underst- that we understand as miracles may have in fact just been the result of his uh, remarkable uh, skills as a physician. Uh, there is a uh, an interesting uh, episode, of course, where Jesus heals a uh, a man who has a withered hand. Uh, is there is there anything in that particular uh, healing to you that uh, that suggests it could have been something other than a other than a miracle, uh, Doctor Honig? Did we lose Doctor Honig? Oh, there he is. Okay. Yeah, that one doesn't seem to be explainable by any uh, kind of uh, physician skill uh, that, that, that I could come up with, and, and, and that one I would have to leave in the category of the, of the supernatural uh, divine healing uh, category. Uh, so, uh, it, again, something that's long-standing uh, like that, um, there's, there's no way I can envision how, how one could cure that uh, even today. What um, I mean, the the Egyptians were were uh, were said to have, have had to, you know great uh, physicians, uh, you know the Babylonians, etc. But what uh, what level of uh, uh, medical knowledge would uh, you know the Aramaics have had uh, living at that time? I mean, what what knowledge of anatomy or physiology or hematology would they have would they have had? Do you suspect? Presumably, m- most of the, the, the practical, really useful kind of information would, would not be recorded in a way that one could go back and, and look it up. 
one real exception uh, was Hippocrates uh, and the Hippocrates literature. Um, it, it's not clear whether that's one person, Hippocrates only, or whether it's uh, the school of Hippocrates and, and, and many others who worked with him. That's been written down, and so we can get a pretty good idea uh, of, of, of what they knew and what they did and what they could do. And, and, and a lot of it is really remarkable. But in, in a different area uh, of the world, uh, if you consider that the skill of a, of a physician at, at that time was simply something that one picked up by apprenticeship, if a particular healer came upon a particular herb, say, that, that had some really uh, beneficial effect uh, for treating patients, that information might have been um, passed among the uh, apprentices of that particular physician and, and never really uh, gotten beyond that point. So I suspect that a lot of ancient medical knowledge, even very effective medical knowledge, really pretty much stayed where it was uh, and never got recorded and uh, brought into uh, the public eye so that one can really go back and look at it. Now, there are other ancient um, uh, cultures. Uh, the Sumerians in, in Mesopotamia did write out uh, some materials and, and, and some cuneiform tablets have been found that had a lot of information about herbs uh, that seemed to be beneficial uh, for various medical uh, conditions. Um, in, uh, in Judea, um, I'm not aware of anything uh, where, where anything like that was recorded. All right, let's go back to the phones, and Ryan is in Scarborough, Ontario. Hello, Ryan. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, it's funny that you talk about Egypt, because uh, I think uh, Jesus, for a good uh, portion of his life, he uh, not really sure where he went. I think he did go to Egypt and learn a lot of uh, different trades and different and different tools from the Sumerians and the ancient Egypts, and they did know a lot of a lot more stuff, I believe, than we even know to this day. But back to the point, I just wanted to make really quick to back up one of uh, your uh, your your guest points there about about how Jesus could bring people back to life. Um, I think that back in ancient times, the voodoo people, I, 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 I don't know what um, concoction it was, but some kind of uh, formula that they would get people to drink, and they would end up uh, bloating up very fat, and they would look dead, and they would also smell dead, like you guys were saying. And a lot of times their breathing would be so low that you couldn't even tell that they were breathing. And then they would be buried alive, in fact, but they would, they would, they would think they were dead. And these uh, voodoo people would dig up the bodies, bring the people back to life, and then steal their souls. And that's where the origin of, uh, of um, zombies comes from. So that uh, backs up one of, one of his points. And like I was saying, I think Jesus went to Egypt and might have learned some of these tricks and then brought them back to uh, Jerusalem and uh, the land of... Cain or Khan or whatever. Yeah, I don't. I'm not exactly sure of the the uh, the time frame in terms of voodoo, which uh, originated in uh, I believe it was more like central South Central Africa. But uh, I, yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. that came along, uh, uh, you know, quite a bit after. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I, I know you bring up that point, but I'd just like to also add that I believe the uh, the Egyptians, who I think uh, Nephilim have a lot of part to do with the. Egyptians, they bring, they brought the uh, knowledge. That's where knowledge originated. From. So the voodoo pro- people probably just pick up this knowledge down the line, right? So I think maybe knowledge originated from the Egyptians. So they probably knew it well in advance, and it might have not been the exact same uh, root or way that they hmm. or type of things that these people ate, but the same type of thing. Like it would make them seem and look 
dead uh, when in fact they weren't and Jesus maybe knew this and knew how to bring some of them back not to take anything away from it like obviously a lot of the stories Jesus did perform miracles so not to take anything away from it but all right Ryan appreciate the call thank you I hope you'll uh, check in with us uh, once again all right well I, I got to be honest uh, I'm not buying that one Dr. Honig I don't think that uh, for example Jairus would have uh, you know tried to turn his daughter into a zombie or that Lazarus was in fact uh, you know the victim of some uh, you know, plot to turn him into a zombie. But as you say, I mean, there are examples in the Bible that, that you, there are no other explanation other than uh, super, a supernatural one. Oh, absolutely. I, I think there's no, no denying that. What, what, uh, what else did you uh, uncover uh, about the historical Jesus that you didn't know prior to uh, beginning this project? But it, it's, uh, it, it, it's a, a fascinating field, and it's just about 100 years old. The, the, the first major writing that appeared in English, anyway, um, uh, appeared in 1910. Um, and uh, Albert Schweitzer is the, is the author of that, uh, this re- remarkable man who uh, made so many achievements uh, in theology and philosophy and music and, and everything else. And he wrote a book called The Search for, or The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And and one point he made, uh, which is kind of interesting, he said, if we're going to try to understand the historical Jesus, one thing we need to do is to get a much better understanding of Judaism in the first century, because Jesus was a Jew, so were his disciples and virtually everyone else that he was in contact with. And Schweitzer made the point that if we understand what the Jews were thinking and doing and what they were all about, we would have a much better framework in order to understand uh, the life of Jesus. And one of the strongest uh, points that he made uh, uh, was that, that we need to do more to understand the Jewish environment of uh, Judea in the first century. And since that time, the area has, has exploded into a major area of scholarship, but that one area looking at the, the Jewish dimension of Jesus and his life, kind of got uh, pushed aside. And only in the last 10 or 15 years has that gotten major emphasis. And some of the most interesting things that came out of all of this are what resulted just from that. Um, one of the interesting ones, um, the, the, uh, the narratives uh, in, in all of the Gospel stories, describe a lot of friction between Jesus and the Pharisees, who were his uh, fellow Jews. And in in many respects, that that seems odd, because the really nasty people uh, who were on the scene were were Romans, uh, not Pharisees, presumably. But anyway, uh, in the year 2003, two books came out, one from England and one from the United States, presumably unbeknownst uh, to each other, the two authors came up with the same title, and it's called Jesus the Pharisee. And this suggests that, um, I mean, a Pharisee was not somebody who had a card that he carried around like a Republican, say, um, but by the definitions that one would appropriately apply, both of these authors and both very credible scholars have concluded that Jesus probably was a Pharisee, um, and so much of the conflict that's 
uh, chronicled in, in the New Testament may have been exaggerated, uh, uh, to, to say the least. And, and, and that was an interesting kind of thing, because it puts a lot of the narrative um, in, in a different perspective once you once you're left with 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 that idea i'll say uh yeah i uh, that one i had not heard uh, jesus the pharisee well that would be uh, uh, an interesting read to be sure uh, there are two uh, different books both of them quite different and both of them um came out in the same year well uh, dr honig i want to thank you for uh, your time this is uh uh, been a fascinating discussion. The interesting thing was, I, I, I think at the end of it, I mean, I think we both agree that there were probably more so, uh, so-called miracles that, that uh, could not be explained uh, away by modern medicine that would have to be uh, ascribed to some sort of a supernatural event. Uh, but there are those, that, uh, as you say, uh, perhaps um, were simply the work of a great physician. I don't know. I, I, tend, to, uh, just, I, I tend to think that they were all miracles. However, uh, a fascinating discussion nonetheless. The Alexandria Letter. Thank you for your time, Dr. Honig. Thank you very much. All right. When we come back, the Elvis Presley Conspiracy. An update. Back on August 16th, I had Eliza Presley on the program. Tonight, she'll be joined by the head of her forensic team and her attorney. They have evidence chilling evidence not only to prove that Eliza is the half-brother to Elvis and therefore an, a legitimate heir to the Presley estate she's fighting that in court but this same DNA trail led to quite another conclusion a stunning one that a man living currently under the name Jesse Garen Presley is according to this DNA evidence unquestionably Elvis Presley alive no joke you're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. Don't turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Love from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. I just wanted to mention very quickly, I have a, a niece, a Claire, who is over in Botswana uh, now, and uh, she's working with orphans, uh, orphans uh, by, orphaned by uh, HIV and AIDS. And uh, uh, just doing the Lord's work over there. Anyway, it's uh, it's called Project Serve Botswana. 
And she's been over there for a couple of weeks, and they're desperately trying to build some homes for people over there. And uh, as always, of course, funding is, a, is an issue. Um, and she sort of sent out an SOS on her blog, and I just wanted to direct you to her blog, uh, www.claire-botswana.blogspot.com. I'll put a link up on my website, richardserrett.com, but if you have a moment, please um, uh, read about, not just because she's uh, my my family, uh, but uh, just because, you know, young people get a bad rap these days. Uh, they're selfish, they're lazy, uh, they only think about themselves, and uh, this is a, a fine young woman uh, in her early 20s. I'm, I'm so proud of her. We all are, the entire family. But uh, there she is doing just incredibly heroic and important work uh, that, I tell you, I, I, uh, I sit here uh, every week running my mouth on a microphone and um, wondering sometimes... Am I really making a, a difference, and is this what uh, I was intended to do? And there she is over there actually doing something uh, to make the world a better place. So again, if you would uh, just take a few moments and uh, check out her blog, uh, Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E, claire-botswana.blogspot.com. And uh, I'm going to get her on the show in a couple of weeks. Uh, I have her cell number over there, and we'll... Uh, We'll give you an opportunity to hear this uh, wonderful person and the, the fine work that she's doing, again, with uh, orphans over in uh, Botswana. Call me naive, um, but I think there is some pretty compelling evidence to suggest that Elvis Presley uh, faked his death and is still alive somewhere, somehow. I know that... Uh, that might sound naive to many of you, and others are rolling your eyes saying, oh, no, here we go again. The whole Elvis is alive thing. Haven't we put that to bed? Well, no, quite frankly. Uh, there is... I've done so many shows on this, and I've, I, I, I talked to a, a, a doctor down in Independence, Missouri, who was convinced that he was treating a man um, back in the 90s or the early 2000s, uh, that this individual that was his patient that came to him with chronic pain and a number of things, was in fact Elvis Presley. Uh, that was uh, Dr. Hinton. And of course, he was uh, ridiculed and ostracized, and he may have lost his license, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I've just I've covered this thing from so many different angles. And, uh, and then a, a, along comes a, a young woman uh, who, grew who grew up across the street from Graceland in Memphis, and uh, she was adopted. And on her, her journey to discover who she was, she actually... Uh, came to realize that she was, in fact, the the love child, I guess if I can use that term, of Vernon Presley, Elvis Presley's father, making her the half-sister to Elvis Presley. So she wanted to be recognized as such, and she started uh, going about to gathering the necessary evidence, DNA evidence, of course, as you can imagine, would be crucial in uh, in something like that. And uh, she's been actually uh, uh, fighting this in court and working her way up through the judicial system. We're about to find out, uh, to get an update on where that case is. But to me, and I, and I, I wish her you know, all the luck in that, but to me, and, 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 and to what I'm sure is of paramount importance to tens of millions of people around the world, if not more, is the DNA evidence that she has also proves something else. And that is that there is this man uh, out there who's living under the name of Jesse Garen Presley who is, in fact, according to this DNA evidence, 
Elvis Presley still alive, living under an assumed name? Well, it was the name actually that was uh, given to his stillborn twin brother, Jesse Garen Presley. He's taken that name, I guess, to honor uh, his, um, his twin brother. But uh, here with uh, the rest of the story is Eliza Presley, her attorney, Andrew Mayores, and uh, the head of her forensic uh, team, uh, Garrick, Garrett, rather, Garrett Andrews. Hello to you all. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Hi. Eliza, are you there? I'm here. Hi, Richard. Hi. Well, this is, uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, my very first show here at AM740, uh, Eliza. You were uh, one of my first guests. It was August 16th, 2009, and uh, I had, in fact, I reached you at Graceland um, where you were attending the candlelight vigil, but at that time you said something very interesting. You, I said, well, if you believe that Elvis is still alive, how could you be attending the candlelight vigil? And you said, no, 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 I'm not there uh, to, to mourn Elvis. He's still very much alive. I'm here to, to mourn uh, my grandparents, uh, Vernon uh, Presley and Gladys Presley. Uh, so since we spoke uh, nine months ago, Eliza, just give us a quick update. What's going on in your, your court case to have yourself recognized as a legitimate heir to the, uh, the, the Presley estate? Well, um, actually, kind of a quick correction for you. Gladys, Gladys is not my grandmother. Minnie May was my grandmother. Ah, right. Uh, that's Yeah, Minnie, Minnie May. And, uh, yeah, it absolutely it meant so much to me. First, I had never attended a candlelight vigil to begin with, but that was the first time. But it was also the first time I had ever been to Graceland with, that, with knowing the absolute truth. I think that was probably more, I don't know, fundamental for me than anything, to be honest. When I spoke to you at that time, you, you were, um, you had actually uh, taken this evidence uh, to court, and I believe one of the judges said, you know what, this evidence needs to, to be heard. One of the judges, did he not say that this is compelling and needs to have its day in court? Right. The original judge in probate court. And um, they, in fact, did after it being closed for um, 23 years, I think. They turned around and they actually reopened uh, Vernon Presley's estate. <clears throat> and that was, that was in um, October of 2008. And then it was in January of 2009 um, that my attorney and I went ahead and allowed it to be... Um, taken out of probate court simply or closed in probate court simply because the fact that I was not listed as an original heir in his will, okay, which that's not what I was going after anyway, but because I was not listed as a known heir or whatever you want to call it, right. then they didn't have the jurisdiction to rule on it or to rule on any of the evidence to make me become an heir, so to speak. Now, your, your attorney, Andrew Mayores, is, is with us. Uh, Andrew, uh, I would have assumed that uh, all of the, uh, uh, the monies associated with, with, with Vernon's uh, will would, would have been sort of dispersed. Uh, so what, what would be the point of having Eliza declared a, le- a legal heir to the Vernon Presley estate? 
Well, Richard, I do need to clarify for you. I'm not Eliza's attorney. I am an attorney. Ah. I'm an attorney who's got a lot of familiarity with this because okay. I've spoken with Eliza many times. But I, I'm in Michigan, um, I, and I don't represent Eliza. I'm a, I'm a completely independent um, source and um, of somebody who um, I have a, a blog, and I've written a book. Um, and Eliza has shared some information with me and I have posted a lot of it on uh, the blog that my wife, who's my co-author, and I have. But that is a topic that's a, it's a very good question, and I can tell you that uh, from speaking with Eliza, it's never been her goal to try to grab a piece of Vernon Presley's estate monetarily, or Elvis' estate for that matter. Um, from speaking with Eliza at length and reviewing a lot of the documentation, I can tell you Eliza has been on a journey to try to establish the truth, and that's all she's ever been after. So it's not for her about saying, I'm an heir, now pay up. And as you pointed out, no, Vernon's estate has been closed for a long time. It's been distributed. Um, Elvis's estate uh, was distributed a long time ago. So it's not a situation where at least as I understand it, that she's doing this for the money. So, Eliza, you just want to be recognized uh, as the daughter of Vernon Presley uh, and, and uh, the, uh, the, the half-brother of Elvis. I, I, quite simply, I want to be able to be recognized and declared my father's daughter. All right. Now, t- explain uh, to those not familiar with the connection between your journey to, to, to prove... Uh, through DNA evidence, that you were Vernon's daughter, to the DNA evidence that also would, if uh, true, prove that this Jesse Garen Presley is still, is in fact Elvis Presley, still alive. How did that connect those dots for us? I, people that know me and they know how long this has been going on, on and off through the years that. I was working on trying to prove or disprove if Elvis Presley was my father, which is what I first thought, okay? And then after I had DNA testing done against a first cousin of his on the Presley side in 2000, they came back, the lab came back and said, you're definitely a Presley by birth, um, and that if it's not Elvis Presley, it's going to be somebody extremely close to him. Well, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, he didn't have any living siblings, his only um, brother was stillborn, and I couldn't imagine anybody any closer than that in, in my mind at the time. So they said, well, you're going to have to get more DNA to get more definitive proof if it's def- definitely him or not. So from 2000 forward, my mission became, okay, I'm not imagining this. There is something to it. I'm not off in left field. And they've already stated, yes, you are related you're Presley by birth. You just have to, we just need the DNA to verify which Presley, okay? Never in my wildest dreams did I ever, ever think it was going to come back to Vernon. I just, I never thought that. And I think probably one of the reasons why is because he was at least twice my mother's age at that time. Plus, he was married to Dee Stanley. I just, I never went there in my mind, to be honest. Um, in 2007, <clears throat> by, uh, a collector in Florida that I had contacted to see if they 
had anything that would be feasible to be DNA tested, you know, that wouldn't be corrupted or um, not any good after, I don't know, 30 years at that point or whatever, 31 years. And they're the ones, David, his name was David, he was actually one that steered me in the direction of the entire Jesse story. And I still didn't believe it. That was in mid-2007, and to be honest, I blew him off. Um, it was a few months later. I contacted him again about possibly testing against some item that he had, and he asked me if I ever contacted that reporter at Fox News in Cleveland that had originally interviewed the, the person that you mentioned, Dr. Hinton, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, you know, no, to be honest, I didn't because my mind just hasn't geared toward that direction of, you know, oh, my God, am I really going to go down the road of believing that Elvis Presley faked his death and he's alive? Because unlike a lot of people, maybe even yourself, I was never in that group that thought about it one way or the other, even after I was trying to find if he was my dad or not. I really did never try to go down the road to prove he was alive or not. And after, you know, some more stuff that he told me, he told me there was another sample that they had tested. Um, it was a blue jean sample. So that was the reason I originally contacted Suzanne Stratford at Fox 8 in Cleveland was to see if I could get DNA tested against a sample that supposedly had blood on it from Elvis from the late 60s. I did not contact her because I thought Jesse was Elvis scenario. I get a hold of her, find out that the blue jean sample was completely contaminated and that it not only was it contaminated, but it had more than one profile on it, male and female both, and that nobody could prove where it ever came from. And then it was after she explained that, I found out that this person going by the name of Jesse had submitted a cheek swab DNA uh, sample back in, I want to say, 2000. Was it 2001? Yeah, 2000, oh. no, 2001 for the, the, the right. cheek sample. And I said, do you think, I, I questioned her. I played, I didn't play 20 questions with her. I played about 100. And I said, you know, is this person playing around? Is there anything to it? And she said, well, from every, what we tried to do, we tried to disprove it was him and we couldn't. And I thought that was pretty compelling considering it was, you know, a, a branch basically of Fox News. So yeah, let me just stop you there, Eliza, if I could, because yeah. this is this is very interesting. A mm-hmm. uh, a man named Jesse Garen Presley uh, uh, perf- performs a cheek swab uh, yeah. uh, at, at the request of this Fox News channel in Cleveland. Now, if I could right. get, uh, it, did we just lose Garrett uh, Andrews? Okay, we we're, we're going to try and get we're going to try and get Garrett back because Garrett is. Uh, uh, our forensic expert, and I, 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 I was going to ask Garrett to explain the circumstances where uh, a cheek swab that's requested by a, a, you know, a, a television station, uh, mm-hmm. how that could be conducted uh, and still be uh, you know, considered legitimate. I mean, obviously, Jesse didn't walk into the Fox News station in Cleveland and sit down with a, a, a physician. This was done through the mail. <clears throat> right. Um, we're, we're trying to get Garrett back on the phone, but uh, uh, either Andrew, maybe Andrew, can you? I mean, you, uh, you've uh, obviously researched this. I should mention uh, Andrew Mayoris, uh, the um, 
via the blog is probatelawyerblog.com. Did I get that correct? You sure did. Probatelawyerblog.com. And uh, uh, together with uh, your, your wife, you've been uh, writing the, uh, the Elvis Presley conspiracy. Uh, how was, what were the, the circumstances where this DNA, this, uh, this cheek swab was performed by Jesse Guerin Presley on himself and then submitted to Fox News in Cleveland? Uh, actually, hopefully Garrett will be able to join us because that is something he can clear up okay. for us. But my understanding is that that was something arranged directly with uh, Fox TV News in Cleveland and that they sent him the kit and that he performed it and sent it back in. And that would be, uh, we, we do have Garrett, uh, uh, Garrett the Andrews uh, back with us. Apologies, sir. That's all right, Garrett. Uh, Modern technology at its best. Okay. We should mention, now you are, I'm, I'm calling you the, the forensic expert here, but just to give people a... a right. A, I've coordinated the evidence and the experts that uh, are pulling the data and interpreting the data that Eliza currently has and is getting on a regular basis. Okay. So, so could you explain the, the cheek swab performed by Jesse Guerin's, uh, Jesse Guerin Presley that was, okay. that was submitted to Fox News in Cleveland? I mean, would that be legally admissible in court? Actually, it was a little more complicated than that. That was submitted to uh, a police officer. All right, it wasn't submitted to them. Where it was, it was mailed to them by him, and it was mailed back to the lab directly, so that there would be no uh, interruption in that sample in any way, shape, or form. So, okay. a, a police um, a police officer and, is there present, performs the cheek swab, and then what? Swears out an affidavit that yes, no. I. Now, the person no. that would have to have done the, the cheek swab would have been from the person, which would be Jesse Jaron Presley, in a kit. And that kit is a is basically, it is a, a very long um, Q-tip, um, and there is a vial, and you swab the interior of the cheek, uh, bucal cells, it collects. Something that you need to know, because I've been, I've been reading a lot of postings lately, is that those cells cannot be created in a lab. You cannot create living bucal cells out of thin air that match a human being. Okay? And in paternity tests, uh, tests that you currently see now in courtrooms, you'll see uh, someone try to dub them by using someone else's cells. But the cells have to be of that person. They just, you just can't create them. That said, all the protocols that would need to be set in place to legally be used in a court of law existed, were followed, and so that is evidence legally and will hold up in a, in a court of law. More than that is that that sample was matched to a 2008 uh, sample to um, saliva that was on an envelope, a pink envelope that was mailed uh, back to Eliza. Okay, that was used, and it tested as it was the same person uh, seven years later. Okay, let me stop you there. Uh, Eliza Presley is with us. Andrew Mayores, probate lawyer, who's taken a keen interest in this case, and forensic investigator Garrett Andrews, all here to talk about DNA evidence that will be at some point admitted into court, or has been, and will get... uh, It's day in court. DNA evidence that proves, perhaps, can I say that? Proves Jesse Garen Presley is Elvis Presley and is still walking this planet in 2010. Back with more in a moment.
is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. There is the, uh, the misspelling of uh, Elvis's middle name on his tombstone, Aaron. The, uh, the fact that Elvis, as a, uh, a U.S. serviceman, his, his coffin was not uh, flag-draped, as is the custom. Why? Well, if, uh, in fact, Elvis was not in that casket, uh, Elvis thought it might, perhaps it might have been disrespectful to drape the flag with a U, uh, U.S. flag. There is, of course, the matter of the, un, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the life insurance policy, uh, Lloyds of London, that was not cashed at his death because to do so would, would, would be to perpetrate a fraud. It's not illegal, apparently, to fake your own death as long as you don't capitalize on it. However, now, now some of those things, I think, can be adequately explained. Uh, it's, it's, it's merely a custom to drape uh, a casket with a U.S. flag, if you've been, if you served in the military, it's not uh, sort of the law. Uh, I've heard fairly rational explanations why Jesse allowed uh, his son's middle name to be to be misspelled on the tombstone, uh, and uh, there's some dis- there's some uh, discussion or argument as to whether, in fact, Elvis did take out a Lloyd's of London insurance policy. Uh, however, you can't argue with DNA evidence. And it would seem to me, although I have not seen it, I'm waiting to hear more, that uh, Eliza Presley, half-sister to Elvis, has DNA evidence, not only proving she's uh, half-sister to Elvis, but also that Elvis is still alive. Probate lawyer uh, Andrew Mayores is with us, as well as a forensic investigator, uh, Garrett Andrews. Now, I want to get back to Eliza here in just a moment. Obviously, you're central to this whole story, Eliza, but just very quickly, uh, Garrett, explain to me then the the DNA sample that was submitted uh, by Jesse Garen Presley. What was that compared to in order to prove that Jesse is Elvis? Well, I mean, we had, uh, we would have had to compare it to uh, the on the mother's side, uh, the paternal, uh, I'm sorry, the maternal side, uh, and that is what happened. So when that was compared, those samples showed that not only was Eliza, they couldn't rule out that Elvis at the time was not her her father um, at that time, but at that juncture they said, well, you know what, Donna Early Presley is actually your first cousin, by relationship, and the and that the, they were both first cousins on, on both, you know, on the maternal side. So that right there, a woman um, who's um, in Texas, uh, and she suddenly is related to the Presleys. How'd that happen? Okay, just let's go out on on a limb there. How'd that happen? Okay, and then we have uh, DNA from somebody uh, that was done six, seven years prior, that was tested and run and was uh, the protocols that police normally use, that was tested, okay? And we find that out, and she has a cancer scare, so she's like, well, I would really like to get this solved, so I know who my father is, 
if something should happen and my kids get cancer. So she goes and she starts searching, and she got contact. We got a sample. That was tested, and then things started to roll. And with that, we went to 14 labs, I think, by now total. Um, I think at the time it was like six, and now it's about 14. Um, and then the last uh, you saw probably on the television show, and it's posted on YouTube, was um, the doctor, Dr. Yates, who's uh, a DNA specialist, outside of the forensic specialist that said Elvis would have to be alive on live national TV. Um, Dr. Yates said the same thing, is that, so the listeners out there know it would be a 99.9% fact that that DNA would have to be from a very living Elvis Presley, okay, I'm and still, not a dead Elvis. Okay, Presley. forgive me because I'm 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 uh, I'm I'm a simple man. I, I'm I'm still not quite understanding. How, what was the DNA sample from Jesse compared with to prove that he is Elvis? I mean, was there, for example, we know that you know there, Elvis uh, had a a, a a liver biopsy in 1975. No, so no, that was corrupt. Um, it was compared to the living relatives and first cousins on the maternal side. Okay. Maternal and paternal, both sides. Oh, and paternal, right. And okay, so sides. why wouldn't that necessarily, why would that prove that he was Elvis and not just another male cousin? You want to go with that, Elijah, and explain that? Um, it's real simple. If I would have only tested against the paternal side, then yes, it could have been another male cousin. However, for this individual to match both sides of the family tree, the maternal and paternal, so a first cousin, a niece of Gladys's, and a first cousin, a niece of Vernon, you have to be Elvis because only the offspring of Gladys and Vernon could have made the person that can match both sides. Ah, there we go. There is the right. to be the only male, and the only male is Elvis. So, Eliza, where is that DNA evidence in in in, in terms of the it's the the the, the legal proceedings? Uh, where are you with that? I did, I did turn around and go back to court, as you know, this past August. That's when I met you for the first time is when I was there. And um, <clears throat> I did go back. I did file in Chancery Court. Um, it's not that it's above. Andrew could probably explain this better. It's not that it's above probate court, but it's the proper venue. Okay? And anyway, we turned around and filed. And... The person that I had to file that against was actually Lisa Marie. Lisa, first was Lisa Marie, second was any known heirs, third was any unknown heirs. Because Lisa Marie is actually the last living person that was an heir to Vernon Presley. Okay, everybody else has passed away. And so I, I, was, I was so in shock because I didn't expect to have to do that, but because it wasn't probate court any longer, um, it, like it was explained to me, is, well, you can't do it against your father because he is deceased. So the only person I could list was Lisa Marie. And then at that point, she had 30 days to respond to the filing. Uh, consequently, <laughs> it's so funny. I, I found where I was accused online of just um, pretending to file things in court. No, it wasn't pretending anything. We did file, and in fact, the DNA reports were attached to that filing, okay? And those are under seal. The, 
you can go and read the petition all day long, but the the, the actual DNA reports, those are all under seal because they're confidential. And anyway, she had 30 days to respond to that, okay? She never responded whatsoever. She did not have her attorneys respond. She, nothing. So where does that leave you? Nothing from her. Where does that leave you in court? I was told that, I was told that if I waited another 30 days, that I could then turn around and file for a default judgment. Okay, and if you get a default judgment, what happens then? The quote-unquote by default, I could be declared Vernon's daughter, basically. However, as it's been pointed out to me, um, and Andrew, you may want to speak on this, of which is one reason it hasn't been done from August or September, rather, October, from October till now, is the result that would have. Okay. Andrew, I'll, I'll let you pick this up the way you... Absolutely. You and and Eliza, Eliza and I have <laughs> talked about this because, as I said earlier, Eliza isn't waging this battle to try to get money out of Vernon's estate or Elvis Presley's estate. She's waging this battle to try to discover and show to the world the truth. So she's fighting on two fronts, in a court of law and in the world of public opinion. And when Lisa Marie Presley decided not to come forward in the lawsuit and allow uh, Eliza to win by default, that's because there's no way without Lisa Marie's uh, participation in the case for Eliza to prove to, in the world of public opinion that she's telling the truth without Lisa Marie's cooperation, unless Eliza goes to the next step. And I've told her very early on that, for my opinion as a, as a lawyer looking at everything, that, Le- that Eliza has to go the next step and ask the judge to have the grave of Vernon Presley opened and have his body exhumed for DNA testing. Now, I'm not sure. Explain to me, uh, Andrew or Eliza or Garrett, uh, why you need Lisa Marie's uh, uh, participation. If you've got DNA evidence, what more do, could you possibly need? Well, you would immediately get a kinship DNA test done, and you'd see the relationship between Eliza and uh, Lisa Marie, and you would immediately see, in a court of law, that it's her aunt. And that's what you would see publicly. You'd also see that there would be a direct relationship uh, with Vernon Presley, and it would be her dad. It's that simple. Um, it's not rocket science, and that is well, the, what would need to happen. The other part, if I can interrupt you for a second, Garrett, the other part um, with Lisa Marie, and this is kind of the brass tax of it, with Lisa Marie's participation, even if you take out doing kinship between she and I, kinship between she and Vernon, right? If I have DNA that I'm telling you is coming from Elvis Presley or a very alive Elvis Presley, which it is and I know it is beyond a shadow of a doubt, then what's going to happen when Lisa Marie's DNA is compared to, quote-unquote, Jesse Garen Presley? Exactly. It's going to show that alive. It's going to show paternity. It's going to show that is her biological father, which then validates the DNA and the testing that I've done and the filing that I've made and going to court and the truth that I have been fighting for for so long. And so you're I at a stalemate. I bring something up quintessentially that happened 
during the filing of this case. Yes. And it may be a coincidence, but I highly doubt it, um, is that Lisa Marie left town and has moved. She has moved. And has sold a lot of her property. Did you, and that's did you, know, did you know that? You didn't know that, Richard. Did I did you? not know that. Liquidated. Within 45, within 45 days after I filed in court, she put her home in California for sale and they moved to London. Not just that. There were several homes. Interesting. Yeah, yeah but and you're, so you're contending because she did that because she did not want to have to submit to a DNA test. That would be that would be my guess. Let me ask you I, about. I can't think of any other reason why. Let me ask you about uh, Jesse Garen Presley, uh, Eliza. How how did you get in contact with him, uh, and how did he feel about? This DNA evidence, which could, if in effect, out him, assuming that Elvis wants to stay hidden uh, and wants people to continue to believe that he's uh, dead, how did he uh, feel about uh, this d- DNA evidence coming to the fore? Um, well, it, it, it's... We're well, technically, it's kind of, we're not in contact with Elvis Presley. You're not in contact. Well, no, with him. I've been. Well, no, I've I've been in contact with him since 2008. Um, because of course, like I said, like Garrett said, he sent me the pink envelope. However, right. um, the best way that I can put that is, I don't think I. There's not any assistance I've gotten from him, and a lot of people have asked me that. But like I've tried to explain and tell people is that this isn't his fight; it's mine. It's something that I have to do. I have to finish what I started. And that since it's not, he's not the one that's my father, okay? He may be my brother. And, you know, like I tell everybody all the time to the world, he's Elvis Presley to me, he's my brother, is that there's not anything out of this that he owes me, if that makes any sense. And that unless he were I mean, unless he were to contact me or try to contact me and flat out say, I don't want you doing anything, but I don't think he feels like he has the right to do that, that he doesn't have the right to deny my father to me. Oh, you would, yes, it does. I mean, he is, he's your half-brother. Has he ever expressed any interest in meeting you? I mean, I, if you had a, a, a half-sister uh, or some, a half-brother out there that you, you didn't know about and then you found out they were there, you'd, you'd think that he'd want to meet you, Eliza. I, I think that'll end up happening at some point in the future. Well, he's um, 75. How much future does he have? I, I know. That's, that's kind of what bothers me is simply because of the fact that he is 75 now, you know, going on 76, that I'm afraid something could possibly happen to him before I have a chance to meet him. And the thought of that really kills me, to be honest. Uh, with this stalemate with uh, with uh, Lisa Marie, she will not uh, submit to a DNA, which is required uh, for the final declaration to be made. Uh, but is there... Yes. I mean, now see, I haven't actually get think. I haven't actually, I have not actually filed and petitioned for her to do that directly. Okay. Yeah, and R- Richard, let me clear up one thing. Um, Eliza doesn't need Lisa Marie's cooperation to win her case. From what I've seen, the DNA evidence that she has is enough to go to court and win the case. But again, she's fighting on two fronts, and to convince the world that Eliza is telling the truth, which means that Elvis Presley is alive. 
she needs the strongest and most compelling evidence available because the world's just not going to believe it without rock-solid, 100% undeniable right. proof that is tangible to the average person. And that's Absolutely. why Lisa Marie's cooperation or going the next step if Lisa Marie refuses to cooperate, that's what's needed to win that battle. But to win the court case, from what I've seen, Eliza has more than enough to do that. If, uh, and speaking of evidence, I yes. just want to bring something up, Richard, that we did have additional evidence, we do, in, in forms of letters. And those letters were submitted to um, a legal forensic expert that works and has worked um, not only actually in fingerprinting, but he's also worked in... Uh, in, um, in interpret writing for question documents. And he's concluded, just so you know, this is new evidence that we hadn't shared because we hadn't gone through the ropes of finishing it, uh, that it was neither... It was inconclusive that it wasn't or that it was. And when you have that... It wasn't or uh, it was the, the handwriting of Elvis Presley. Right. You're and, talking and about. I want to speak to that okay. because there was another graphologist slash question document expert that worked for uh, Kansas City, Missouri, in the Hinton case. And in that case, there was a document that that she wrote uh, that was word enough to the attorney general's office in in Missouri, um, and she said there could only be one conclusion. And understand, she looked at many, many, many letters that we didn't have in our person. Um, and that report cites and was given to the Attorney General, and he cleared those people of wrongdoing. Let me, just, let me just explain, because uh, some of this is, uh, most of this is new information. Uh, Dr. Hinton was treating a man uh, he believed to be Elvis Presley, but he was prescribed, and he had not even met him at some point, he was prescribing medicine, uh, pills. These were going through the mail. That's You right. can't do that. So his, his, My understanding yes. is that's what happened. So Dr. Hinton's license was suspended for sort of committing mail fraud by, uh, by, by sending these prescript, prescriptions through the mail. So in order to help his no, friend actually, out... Let me, oh, no, okay. let me clarify no. this. Just, yeah, I don't, okay. yeah. There's so much misinformation out there. His license was never suspended. It, he was on probation for five years. Okay. And he was not convicted of anything concerning mail fraud. And in fact, they came back and said they he was able to prove that those items that were sent to Clinton were were actually that they did turn around and go to the individual stated. So he was never brought up on mail fraud charges, anything like that. Okay. He simply he was not supposed to, just like any doctor, you can't prescribe something to someone that you have not seen. Fair enough. That, so I just want to, okay, so yeah. thank you for that clarification. That's important. But the, the point is here that Jesse, in order to help his friend mm-hmm. out, wrote a letter to the attorney general in Missouri saying, right. I, you know, I am, El, uh, basically what, I am Elvis you Presley? You are correct. Okay. Yeah. You are correct. So, and the attorney general, this was then submitted mm-hmm. to a handwriting anal- uh, analyst and they yes. determined that... This was, in fact, the handwriting of Elvis Presley. And guess what? Well, it stood up. It stood up. Kind of, bottom line, kind of bottom line, the Attorney General's office, beside the handwriting, etc., that Shirley Mason verified, 
they were able to verify that the person behind the whole thing going by the name of Jesse, they were able to verify that was, in fact, Elvis Presley. Do you really think that it would have just, that if that person was a fake or that person was a fraud, do you really think that um, all of that would not have been pursued to the maximum of the law for, for, for perpetrating a fraud? It would have been. That's, that's and an excellent point. generals usually acquit you of a crime if you do that type of investigation? Doesn't it usually hold up? Yeah, so, no, that, there was a lot to that. But the other thing with the, the current um, question document examiner is simply because there's this gap, okay? There's this gap of known handwriting that stops in 77, and then all of a sudden it picks up in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000, 2001 through 2010, which means there's this huge gap that the question document examiner didn't have to work with. All right, we've got to take a time out. We'll come back. Eliza Presley, Andrew Mayores, and uh, Garrett Andrews. DNA evidence proving Elvis is alive. Documents written in Elvis's hand, verified by handwriting analysts, proving Elvis is still alive. Still not convinced? Well, more of uh, the Richard, or more of the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett to come on the other side. Stay with us. A little less conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A little more bite, a little less spark. A little less fight, a little more spark. Close your mouth and open up your heart and never satisfy me. Satisfy me, baby. Baby, close your eyes and listen to the music. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Eliza Presley fighting in court for legal recognition as the legitimate daughter of Vernon Presley, the half-sister of Elvis Presley, and her DNA evidence also, she says, proves that Elvis Presley is alive. Her half-brother is living under the name Jesse Garen Presley. Also on the line is Garrett Andrews, who is sort of heading her forensic uh, team, and a, a probate lawyer uh, um, up in uh, Michigan, Andrew Mayoris, uh, Andrew, you know, a, a lot of those early sort of uh, Elvis sightings uh, that were sort of, you know, taken uh, with a sort of a grain of salt were uh, Elvis being seen, I, I think, up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. But that those Elvis sightings in Kalamazoo made probably a great deal of sense since his good uh, friend Muhammad Ali lived in, nearby. Absolutely. Plus, Kalamazoo is a wonderful place to visit. I don't know if you've ever been there, but um, <laughs> Elvis has been... Uh, uh, to perpetuate perpetuate this, um, uh, Elvis has been on the move over the years, so he, he has been in different parts of the country. Now, uh, who who is surrounding Elvis at this point? Who is uh, who is? Uh, I mean, uh, is it was is it the the uh, the uh, the um, witness protection program? Uh, who is who is protecting Elvis? Um. That's really not a question anybody can answer, to be honest. 
But is he in the witness protection program? Yeah, I don't know anything about that. We don't. Okay. Yeah, I. The only thing I ever remember reading, but I never, I've never asked him to be honest. I haven't asked him a lot of the questions that people would think I have, you know, or the ones that everybody wants to know about Elvis. I've only ever tried to ask stuff very personal to me. So I know that sounds, you know, kind of odd, but I remember reading somewhere in the last, I don't know, whenever that he declined to go in the witness protection program originally or something, because from what he understood that all your contact with friends and family has to be, you know, basically cut off overnight and that he couldn't do that. I just don't remember where I read it at. Mm. Yeah, that's correct. In uh, the, uh, the book that Elvis uh, wrote with Dr. Hinton, uh-huh. uh, there is a picture of uh, Elvis as he looks today. I believe the picture was taken back in the mid-90s, and we see Elvis in a, um, in a scooter. He's just wearing a pair of shorts, uh, and he's got his, um, it would be his grandson, Lisa Marie's son, Benjamin Storm, on his lap. That's right. Mm-hmm. Is that, it, do you believe that to be a legitimate photograph, and that is, in fact, Elvis, as he looks today, Can more I or less? to the forensics of that? Yes, please, um, Gary. Actually, that picture was run, and photo analysis for, for forensics measured the distance between uh, his legs, his arms, his joints, his eye distance, his mouth, his lips, his ears, um, his stature, his height, um, and it checked out to match Elvis Presley. Now, people don't know that. I know that. But, you know, that's, uh, that's something that um, News 8 had done and paid for. So I know Susan Stratford had, they had done a lot of checking um, into their story. Um, of course, we never knew any of this until, you know, now running into to the other evidence. But um, that's another thing that uh, people are unaware of, but and, and we can ver- measurements were taken. We can verify that the, the toddler on uh, Elvis's lap is, in fact, Lisa Marie's son, Benjamin, can we? Um, we- if you go online and, well, I have copies of photos of Benjamin prior and after that photo was taken. I can email them to you if you want, but it's, it's absolutely dead on. You can tell it's the same child. Um, what people don't realize is that he was already older there, wasn't dying his hair black anymore, obviously, right? Because he, premature grain is on the Presley side of the family. Sure. Um, his hair had turned before anybody ever knew it turned scenario, you know, before 77. And um, between that, between the fact they had not seen him age, um, between any what I call superficial plastic surgery, the, you know, the stuff that you can kind of alter but you can't, alter the stuff that, that Garrett just spoke to. So when you kind of put all of that stuff together, then people think, oh, well, it doesn't look like him. Well, you have a preconceived notion of what you think he should have looked like at that age scenario. And that picture was already, I want to say, uh, it was already several years old by the time he let it get published. Let's put it like he that. He was 61. And then, he was 61 in that picture, by the way. Yeah, right. and that, that picture was already a few years old by the time he let it get published in the book, right? And I do know that his looks have changed on and off through all the years, depending on what he does differently. And I'm assuming that depends on when and where he ends up having to move to. It depends on, you know, a lot of different factors. But 
I'm thinking if I'm trying to stay out of the public eye for almost 33 years now, that I'm going to turn around and change what I have to when I have to out of necessity. He seems to be somewhat coy. I mean, he on the one hand, he, he writes to the Attorney General, Elvis mm-hmm. do, does, that, uh, you know, I... Um, Something about I can't you know reveal my location because I would be uh, you know great eliminated. harm would come to me I would be eliminated, uh, which would be eliminated right yeah which I guess ties back to the whole Project Fountain Pen where he test he was to testify against the mob uh, and he sent to some some high ranking uh, gangsters to prison uh, but on the other hand here he is appearing in a photograph uh, he's uh, he's you know making this DNA uh, evidence uh, available. What's don't you understand what the common the common theme is in all of that? Right? Help me out with that. The one. common the common theme and even with even with the letter that was sent to me or all the different letters that have been sent to me, even when you put all of that stuff together, the common theme is yes, it's proving over and over and over again that it's him, right? But that doesn't it may expose him, but it doesn't expose where he's at or how he's living. Right. So therefore, right. he can still stay in hiding while the rest of this is happening. Does that make sense? It does. Why wouldn't he then make it known to his fans uh, he can still keep his his whereabouts secret until his dying day if he wishes, but why wouldn't he I don't know. What do you uh, think he what do you think he tried to do with the book, Richard? That's exactly why that book came out. Right. He also said, though, that he was going to come forward in 2002 and make him make himself known, and that never happened. No, no, he never did. He did no. Oh. Actually, that's a that's a, a, a misstatement, and that's a misquote. He didn't say that. Doctor Hinton said that. Ah, okay. And I want to I want to reiterate something. That book, so you're aware, was not mm. published with the permission that was supposed to be released after he died. It was never right. to be released in why he was alive. And I, I want to also bring something else. Uh, as an icon, he's got uh, as great as a following, and I'm not trying to be, because I realize that you just had a show on Jesus Christ um, and Miracles of Jesus Christ just before our show. He has a cult following that uh, is equal to, in some people's eyes, um, as, as Jesus Christ. And there's never been an uh, iconic uh, musician who's changed music in history that I don't think that will ever be, like Elvis Presley. On top of that, people are expecting to see, I mean, this is a man that served the military. He's done everything that, you know, I think that he owes nothing to anybody. He's done, he's done uh, you know, a lot for America. And I don't think at 75... Um, I would expect a man of that caliber, uh, no matter how famous, to want to come back out of hiding just for not only safety but stress and health reasons and give the man a break. That's my opinion because, you know, even though I like Elvis, it's, it's not the biggest deal for me to see him come forward. Uh, is, it, is it likely that in the not-too-distant future a court... If you proceed with this, uh, Eliza, a court will be uh, essentially forced to declare, and then the media will have to follow, that Elvis Presley is still alive? Well, like like Andrew spoke of earlier, um, I I am going to be filing another petition. Um, 
and requesting that Lisa Marie do submit DNA to validate mine. Okay. Um, I don't know if she'll agree or not. I I kind of doubt that she will just for the simple fact that she moved to Europe, but I, I, I don't know. I could be wrong. On the other hand, um, you know, if she does it, that's great. I'll, I'll get this finished. If she doesn't, then what people don't understand is that I will then have no choice, okay? I'll be forced at that time because it's not what I want to do. The very last thing that I ever want to do is the unthinkable, and that will be to have our father exempt for paternity and for DNA testing. But if that's what it takes to finish everything once and for all and keep my brother protected and keep him where and as he is, so to speak, then so be it. That's what I'll have to do. I just hope that Lisa Marie cared in, as, as, enough about her grandfather that she wouldn't want to see that happen. Eliza, uh, thank you for this. And listen, on a very selfish note, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm too far off in suggesting that I'm one of the few uh, people toiling in mainstream media that have followed this uh, as closely and uh, with as, as much seriousness. Uh, do you think it would be possible that Elvis would ever actually write a letter to me? I mean that in all seriousness. Um, you know what? Email me your contact information and I'll put it in a letter to him and ask him if he will. Trust he me, if he doesn't want to do something, he'll tell you no. <laughs> all right. I appreciate he that. He heard you. So. He, he's listening. Do we know he's listening tonight? Um, I'm about... I have it on a good he, source that he's probably listening. Yeah. If, All right. Well, E, if, if you are... Him the infor- if they gave him the information, Richard, then, yeah, he's just listened to everything, absolutely. All right. Well, E, if you are... Can I call him E? <laughs> if you are listening, taking care of business. All right, my friend. And uh, Garrett, uh, thank you. Andrew, thank, thank you. you. Eliza, as always, thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. I appreciate you having me back on. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Dan Ellison, thank you. Back next week. Move over, Aphrodite, and I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.